Good morning. We are excited to start this new series together uh, called I Am, looking at the uh, seven statements that Jesus makes in John, uh, where he describes who he is. Uh, he begins these statements with I am, fill in the blank. And, uh, and so we believe that in this, as Colton was talking about, in this Lent season, we have seven Sundays until, um, until Easter Sunday, and we want to spend an intentional time just thinking about who Jesus said that he was, to orient our hearts and our eyes on him as we, as we move forward. Um, before, we, uh, before I get going this morning, I'm just going to invite the ushers forward, and they're going to bring some Bibles down, and so if you'd like a Bible, just put up your hand. They'd love to give you one. If you don't own a Bible, uh, then you can take this home. It's our gift to you. Uh, so when the ushers do come, uh, you can put up your hand. We'd like to give you one. Uh, we're going to be jumping all over the place this morning uh, because I'm going to intro the series, kind of what these statements are all about, what they mean, and then we're going to look specifically at the, the statement that Jesus makes where he says, I am the bread of life, which we find in John 6. Um, so to give you a little brief outline, we're going to start John 8, Exodus 3, Exodus 15 to 16, and then John 6. So we're going to make that box with John and Exodus. You can follow along with me. So I am Jesus' statements about who he is. If someone were to ask you, who are you? How would you answer that question? You can shout it out. Who are you? Lucas. How did I know you were going to respond? I am Lucas. What are some other responses? I am child of God. Any other responses? Maybe somebody would say, you know, I am fill in the blank of this is what I do for my job. Um, in, in the 9 o'clock service, I know we had one person that was there that they had a list of all the things they were, you know. Uh, they are a son, they're a father, a uh, husband, uh, you know, a carpenter, a uh, son of God. They, you know, they had a list of things and the beautiful statements of who, who they were. And lots of people have a question, who is Jesus? Who is he? And Jesus responds to those questions, particularly in the book of John. John is very concerned with letting us in on who Jesus believes himself to be. And then he leaves the decision for those reading, those listening, of who, who do you think Jesus is? Do you agree with Jesus' statements of who he is himself? Or do you disagree with him? But you have to do something with them. So that's what we're going to look at. And we're going to begin in John uh, chapter 8. You can turn with your Bibles there uh, with me. Uh, John 8, uh, I believe starting in fifth, verse 52. And I'm going to read out of the message version, uh, the message paraphrase. It says, at this point, Jews said, now we know you're crazy. Abraham died, the prophets died, and you show up saying, if you practice what I'm telling you, you'll never have to face death, not even taste death. Are you greater than Abraham who died? And the prophets who died, who do you think you are? Jesus said, if I turn the spotlight on myself, it wouldn't amount to anything. But my father, the same one you say is your father, put me here at this time and place of splendor. You have recognized him in this, but I have said, but, but, I, 
sorry, you haven't recognized him in this, but I have. If I, in false modesty, said I didn't know what was going on, I would be as much of a liar as you are. You know, Jesus is quite a straight shooter sometimes. You're a liar. But I do know, and, I'm, and I am doing what he says. Abraham, your father, with jubilant faith, looked down the corridors of history and saw my day coming. He said it and cheered. The Jews said, you're not even 50 years old. And Abraham saw you? Believe me, said Jesus, I am who I am long before Abraham was anything. That did it. Pushed them over the edge. They picked up rocks to throw at him. But Jesus slipped away, getting out of the temple. It's a fascinating story. What did Jesus do that was so wrong that they wanted to kill him? You know, the literal translation, you know, Jesus says in the response, he says, before Abraham was, I am. So you just look at that, you're like, that's bad grammar. Before Abraham was, I was, I am, like past tense, present tense, like doesn't, so, you know, they could have killed him because they were grammatical freaks and they just really cared about proper sentence structure and they're just like, Jesus, you need to die. You got to learn how to speak properly. But the reason it reads so awkwardly, before Abraham was, I am, is because Jesus is saying something incredibly offensive about who he is. Offensive to those who believe in uh, the God of Israel, the sacred, holy God. Jesus is actually saying in this moment, before Abraham was, I am God. And you think, well, he's just saying, I am. What does, that, what does that mean? Well, let's look at what that means. So we're going to go to Exodus chapter 3. You can turn there with me. Exodus chapter 3. Give you, give you some brief background to the story happening here in Exodus. It's part of the larger story, obviously. Genesis, first book of the Bible. Then Exodus, Genesis begins with Adam. And then there's the story of Noah and the flood. God, you know, wipes out creation because he wants to start a new creation with Noah and his family. They're the beginning of the new creation. You know, out in uh, some descendants later, there's Abraham. Abraham uh, gives birth to Isaac, who gives birth to Jacob. Uh, Jacob has, you know, 12, 12 kids who are going to represent eventually the 12 tribes of Israel that came out of that. One of those kids named was Joseph. And if you remember the story of Joseph, Joseph you know, had a dream that he was going to rule over his brothers, so he told his brothers that. That's never a good idea. Uh, his brothers sold him into slavery. I used to read that story and be like, how? Brothers sold him into slavery? And then I had three boys, and I'm like, I could totally see that happening. <laughs> you sell your brothers into slavery. I'm sure if my kids had that way, we'd be down a kid or two. But um... So Joseph gets sold into slavery, and th- through a long series of events, you can read about it uh, through the last you know, third of Genesis, Joseph ends up in Egypt with a high position under Pharaoh. There's a famine in the land, and the Jewish people need to go to Egypt to get food from Pharaoh to sustain themselves. And so all of the, the, uh, all of the Israelites at that time, and I think there was some... The, the Bible says there was uh, over 70 Israelites at that time. They go to Egypt and they, they meet Joseph there. And then 
they stay there and they're slaves there for 400 years. And so when you start reading in Exodus, and where we pick up the story here in Exodus chapter 3, Exodus is telling the story about these Jewish people that went to, to Egypt. They had all of these descendants, more than the stars in the sky, the sand on the shore. They had two million people. And Moses is an Israelite at this time of slavery in Egypt, um, but he is raised in the home of Pharaoh. Moses goes out, he sees an Egyptian fighting with the Israelite. The Egyptian kills the Israelite. Or sorry, they're fighting. Moses kills the Egyptian. Moses gets caught for killing the Egyptian. And then he flees because he's scared of his life. And so Moses ends up in the wilderness. Uh, he meets a woman at a well. They get married. He works for her dad as a shepherd. And so he's out shepherding his flock. And we pick up the story here in Exodus chapter 3. Um, and so he, he's leading his flock. He's at this mountain called Mount Horeb, which would later be, be known as, you know, one of God's mountains where Moses met God. And then we pick it up in verse 7. And if you have your Bibles with me, you can follow in verse 7. It won't, this part won't be on the screen. But the Lord said, I have indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I have heard them crying out because of their slave drivers, and I am concerned about their suffering. Just a quick connection to our last series here. When I was reading this text this week, I was just reminded that some of us, you know, in our current situations, we're like, does God see me? Does God see what's happening? Does God hear my prayers? Does God hear my cries? Does God know what's going on? Is he even concerned about me? And here we see God responding to Moses responding to the situation of the, the Israelite slaves. And he says, I have seen the misery. I have heard the cries of the prayers, the cries that have come to heaven. And I am concerned about the suffering. And if you're in that place this morning where you're like, does God see, does God hear me, does God concern, does God know, God sees God hears, God knows, he's concerned, and he's not okay with it. So God says to Moses, I've come down so that I can rescue my people. And they have this, uh, Moses and God have this conversation, and God says, I'm going to send you to Pharaoh. Uh, God says, I'm going to send you to Pharaoh, and you're going to be the one to help bring the people out of Egypt. Moses responds, with who am I? Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt? And we're going to see in a second that God doesn't respond to Moses' question of who he is. God responds by telling Moses who he is, who God is. And we come to God and we say, who am I? Moses is 80 years old at this point. God, look at, I'm 80, I'm, you know, I got all these issues and, you know, I'm not perfect and I got my own stuff to figure out. Who am I that you would call me to do this? And God doesn't even respond to our questions because he just says, let me remind you who I am. And when you see yourself in light of who I am, you will think of yourself differently. And my hope is as we go through this I Am series and we think about who Jesus is, 
It is only when we understand God clearly that we begin to understand ourselves clearly. And so Moses said, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and do this? And God said to him, I will be with you, and this will be the sign to you that it is I who have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you will worship God on this mountain. And I've read this passage many, many, many times. And I've read this section over and over again. I've never, it's never struck me how odd God's response here is to Moses. He says, I will be with you. That's great. It's, it's good encouragement. And he says, and this will be a sign to you that it is I who have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you will worship God in this mountain. You want a sign that I'm going to work through you? Well, go do it. Go to, go to Egypt. And then when it's all done and you come out of Egypt, you're going to worship me on this mountain and that'll be a sign to you that I'm going to use you. So to paraphrase, be obedient to me before I give you a sign and when you come back and you look in the rearview mirror, you're going to realize that I'm legit. And how often in our lives does God call us to obedience before we have confirmation and assurance and encouragement that it was God working? How often do we think we're in the middle of the storm and we don't know if God's doing anything, but you look in the rearview mirror and you're like, oh my goodness, look at the hand of God and what he did in my life. And it's just clear to me here that Moses, that God is telling Moses, be obedient to me, put your faith in me. And Moses, and Moses is looking for some kind of sign, assurance that, you know, I can put my faith in God. God's like, no, it doesn't work that way. Put your faith in me and then you'll see that I'm faithful. Anyways, Moses said to God here, verse 13, Suppose I go to the Israelites and say to them, The God your fathers has sent me to you. And they ask me, What is his name? Then what shall I tell them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. What kind of answer is that? Who are you? I am who I am. What are you going to do? This is what you are to say to the Israelites. I am has sent, sent me to you. Well, that's helpful. The... The phrase I am here in the Hebrew, it's what we would uh, transliterate to the English letters Y-H-W-H, which is the verb in Hebrew to be. It's written in the first person singular form. So instead of to be, it's I am. Y-H-W-H. What God is saying to Moses here is that I am self-existent. I am uncreated. I am non-contingent, which means I don't get my source of life from anybody or anything else. I am life itself. I am. The Israelites believed that this name of God was so sacred. They wouldn't speak the name. And when you look in your Old Testament, you'll find, um, or in your Bible in general, you'll find that there's the capitalized letters Lord, L-O-R-D. You'll find the normal word Lord, capital L, lowercase O-R-D, and then you'll find the capitalized all the way through. And the difference is not that you speak one and you yell the other one. <laughs> I know in our texting cultures, like, you know, verse 7, the Lord said, no, you're not supposed to yell, Lord. That's not what it's talking about. That's not why it's capitalized. It's capitalized to indicate 
to um, these followers of God that this is God's sacred name, but we can't speak it. So I know what it is in the text, but I'm not going to speak it because it's sacred. We're not even going to write it. But it's Y-H-W-H. And the Hebrew doesn't have vowels, so we add the vowels in, and it's the, what what the name is, is Yahweh. Everybody say Yahweh. Yahweh. So, I don't know, I just said it, and we're okay. So I think, uh, (laughs) I think it's okay. Yahweh. They wouldn't even speak it. And then we go back to John 8. John 8 uses the phrase, Jesus responds by saying, ego, amy. Everybody say, ego, amy. Ego is where we get the word ego from, I. And amy, first person, singular form of the word to be, I am. You put ego and amy together, it's emphatic, I, I am. So they weren't trying to kill Jesus because his grammar was bad. They were trying to kill Jesus because that name that they couldn't even speak, that they wouldn't even write, that they thought was so sacred and holy, Jesus didn't even just speak it. He said, I am Yahweh. That is who I am. What does this mean? It means that if somebody wants to know what God is like, you look at Jesus. If somebody asks you, tell me about God, what's God like? You could just describe the person of Jesus to them because that is Yahweh with flesh on. That God is what Je- that Jesus is what God has to say. If you want to think about it even more academically, Christology is theology. What does that mean? This, when we study Jesus, when we study Jesus Christ, we're actually studying God. And John, in the book of John, is so concerned with revealing what God is like and who Jesus is to us. And so we're going to look at these seven statements where Jesus says, I am, and then he tells us um, about who he is, what God is like. So we're going to look at the statement in John 6, Jesus says, I am the bread of life. But before we get there, if we're going to understand John 6, we have to, we have to orient ourselves around Exodus 15 and 16. Because John is drawing on all of these, all this language, all the story coming out of Exodus 15 and 16 and putting into John 6. And so you can turn to Exodus 15 uh, with me. I'm just going to do a brief summary because uh, it's a long text. Um, but in verse two, 22, it begins, it says, Then Moses led Israel from the Red Sea, right? So they, they, God rescues them. They, go, they walk through the sea like they're on dry land, right? And then the Egyptians come in behind them. God crashes the sea and delivers them and uh, kills the Egyptians. And so they come through the Red Sea, and they went into the desert of Shur. For three days, they traveled in the desert without finding water. And we read that, we're like, just, we just read over that detail. For three days, they travel, and we don't think anything of it. But the three days that's referred to here, referred to here by the writer of Exodus is extremely important. Why? Because if you go to Exodus chapter 5, verse 3, and there's a couple of other references in Exodus already, the understanding and the expectation of the Israelite people and what Moses communicated to Pharaoh was, let my people go, let me take them into the desert for a three-day journey so we can get to the mountain of God, Mount Horeb, where we can worship him. That was Moses' expectation. 
God even told them, you're going to bring them back to this mountain. They're going to worship me here. And what's happening here in Exodus 15, it's saying they went three days, and where do they end up? Not at the mountain, but the desert, without any water. And so their experience was not, did not agree with their expectation. What they were experiencing was not what they were expecting. And this sets the stage for the story that's going to take place over the next um, couple of chapters here in Exodus. You can, you can see there in verse 24, if you're, if you're there, Exodus 15, 24. So the people grumbled. Say grumbled. Some translations say murmuring. I don't know what that means, so I prefer grumbled. And if you're a parent and you got kids my kid's age, you know exactly what grumbling is. If you're a wife and you have a husband, you know what grumbling is. So they grumbled against Moses saying, what are we to drink? And then you can read in chapter 16, uh, verse 2, they grumbled again. The whole community grumbled against Moses and Aaron. If only we had died by the Lord's hand in Egypt... There we sat around pots of meat and ate all the food we wanted, but you have brought us out into this desert to starve this entire assembly to death. The Israelites would rather be slaves in Egypt, making bricks seven days a week, 365 days a year, than live in dependency on God. They would rather live in a place where they knew what to expect and life was predictable than to live in dependency on God. How often do we, would we rather have a predictable life and we choose slavery over the freedom that God provides, but we have to be dependent on Him? So they grumble. At least in Egypt, we had meals, we had meat, we, we, we were fed. You know, I worked really hard and I, I could never make enough bricks and I was treated like garbage, but at least there I knew what to expect and here in the wilderness, we're just going to die out of starvation. So they grumble. And then God hears the grumbling, he's going to answer the grumbling, he says, I'm going to send some bread from heaven. So you're going to get manna. So the story in chapter 16 there describes how God sends manna to them in the morning, they gather the manna. But they continue to grumble. Seven times in, in this, this passage, the word grumble is used. They grumble, they grumble. God's providing, they grumble. God says, I'm going to provide for you six days, and on the seventh day, you're going to rest. I'll provide on the sixth day double the portion, so on the seventh day, you don't have to go out and work. Just a quick parallel there. Uh, the writer of Exodus is comparing Yahweh to Pharaoh Pharaoh requires people to work seven days a week, 365 days a year, and it's never enough. God says, I want you to work six days a week, and it will be enough, but you've got to trust me. So some people decided they weren't going to trust God, and so they, they hoarded. They tried to hoard their, their manna through the week, but at any time they tried to, to store it or to keep it, it said in the text that it smelt and there was maggots in it. Translation, it was like a junior high boy's locker. <laughs> I, I can say that because the junior high boys left, right? They, it smelt and there was maggots in it. 
God was teaching them, no, you only take what's for today. Trust me with the rest. I will take care of you. And then even on the Sabbath, it says some people went out to collect a man on the Sabbath and there was none. And so they just keep grumbling. I believe that God was training the Israelites involuntarily in a season of little so that they would depend on him voluntarily in a season of plenty. I'll say that again. I believe that God was training them involuntarily in a season of little so that they would depend on him voluntarily in a season of plenty. That in the wilderness, in the desert, when they had no other option, they actually had to put their faith and their trust into God, into Yahweh. And God was showing him something in that season. And they weren't quick to learn it. And if you go to the end of the story... They weren't there for three days. They were there for 40 years. It says for 40 years, they ate manna in the desert. For 40 years, God was teaching them that I'm enough. This is the context to John chapter 6. God is training them in this rhythm, this dependence, he established the Sabbath on the seventh day. And what is the Sabbath all about? The Sabbath is just keeping first things first. That it's not about the manna. It's not about the comforts. It's actually about dependency on Yahweh. And so he teaches them this rhythm. And then we come to John chapter 6, our main text for the morning. You can turn to John 6. So a bit of a background into John 6. John 6 begins, it's a long passage, but John 6 begins the feeding of the 5,000. Right, so Jesus feeds 5,000 people. They're, they're listening to his teaching. There isn't food. Find a boy that has five loaves of bread, two fish. Jesus says, that's enough. He breaks the bread. He multiplies the bread and the fish. And it says here that um, they had as much as they wanted, And then it says, so they gathered them and filled 12 baskets with pieces of five barley loaves left over by those who had eaten. And, af and after the people saw the sign that Jesus performed, they began to say, surely this is the prophet who has come into the world. Jesus, knowing that they intended to come and make him king by force, withdrew again to the mountain by himself. Every time in John that there's a miracle, John does not use the word miracle. John uses the word sign. They're different words. In, in the book of John, there's seven I am statements that Jesus makes. There's also seven signs that Jesus does. Each sign revealing something about himself. Because the point of the sign is not the thing. This is what John is trying to tell us. That the sign is revealing to us something about God, about Jesus. And if we think the sign is about the sign... It's like driving into Calgary saying, welcome to Calgary, and then getting on your car and hanging out by the sign and saying, hey, I'm in Calgary. And you take a picture, selfie with the Calgary sign, you send it to your friends, hey, check it out, I'm in Calgary. And they're like, you're at a sign. You're like, yeah, but the sign says Calgary. Yeah, but you missed the point. The sign is actually telling you, if you just keep going, if you keep going down the highway, you're going to run into the city of Calgary. See, this is what John is saying about all these signs in the book of John. When Jesus does something miraculous, it's not, about the, it's not about that thing. It's actually about what that thing is revealing to us about who God is. 
So Jesus multiplies the bread, multiplies the fish. People eat as much as they want. There's leftovers of bread, right? So you contrast this with the story in Exodus 15 and 16, which John's going to come back to. That God is giving in an abundance, that he's providing for the needs that they can take even more than they want, and he'll give them so much that they're going to have leftovers. And then there's another sign uh, right, right after that where, where the disciples then go onto the boat, not, but Jesus isn't with them. They're in the middle of the sea, and then Jesus comes out to them walking on water to the boat. They're afraid. They recognize it's Jesus. Jesus gets in the boat. As soon as Jesus gets in the boat, they immediately land on the opposite shore. There's a, another sign in John. So people are thinking it's all about the sign. And then we pick up the story here in verse 25. You can read with me. It says, when they found him on the other side of the lake, they asked him, Rabbi, when did you get here? Jesus answered, very truly I tell you, you are looking for me not because you saw the signs I performed, but because you ate the loaves and had your fill. Not because you saw, you perceived, you recognized what the signs were pointing. You're not coming to me because you got it. You're coming to me because you just want more food. You just think I'm like your mom. Mom, pack my lunch. Mom, cook me food. If you just want lunch, don't come to me. That's not why I came. I didn't come to feed you lunch. And then Jesus says, do not work, do, do not work for food that spoils. Echo of Exodus 15, 16. Do you hear that? Do not work for the food that spoils, that smells, that's full of maggots but for food that endures to eternal life. Say eternal life. Just quickly, eternal life here, the, the word life is the word zoe. Can you say zoe? Zoe means quality of life, abundance, abundant life, full life. It's different than the Greek word bios. Say bios. From which we get the word biology. Bios is like... You're alive. You're breathing. You exist. Bios is different than Zoe. The lead, swingers, lead singer of Switchfoot, John Foreman, wrote a lyric that says, I want to thrive, not just survive. I want Zoe, not just Bios. I want abundant, full fulfilling life, not just survival and existence and predictability. Jesus says, the food that you should, you should be looking after and working for, the food that endures to eternal zoe. And the word eternal there, similar to what we would think it means, it's, this, it's an age, a season that has no end. This Life that doesn't end. This abundance, this fullness that you can have today that will go on forever. I want to thrive, not just survive. There's some of you this morning that are just surviving. That you're just in bios. You long for Zoe. This is what Jesus is getting to in John chapter 6. Verse 28, then they asked him, what, what must we do to do the works God requires? Jesus said, answered, the work of God is this, to believe in the one he has sent. 
And that word belief isn't just intellectual, it's, it's a faith, it's, a, it's mind and body, holistic, putting your weight into Jesus. The work of God is this to believe in the one that he sent. So they asked him, what sign then will you give us that we may see it and believe you? What will you do? Our ancestors ate the man in the wilderness, as is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat, referring to the story that we just read. Jesus said to them, very truly I tell you, it is not Moses who have given you the bread from heaven. The manna never came from Moses to, be, to begin with. The manna came from God. But it is my Father who gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is the bread that comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Sir, they said, always give us this bread. Give us this, this stuff that's going to give us this zoe. That isn't just going to, this not just about survival and feeding my hunger, but is about going beyond that and giving me a fulfilling life. Jesus declared that I am, say I am, ego me. I am the bread of life. I, Jesus is saying, often in John, John says things and has two meanings. Jesus is saying, I'm the bread of life, so that bread that you're looking for is me, I'm bread, but he's also saying, I am Yahweh. I am the bread of life. I am Yahweh. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry, and whoever believes in me will never go thirsty. But as I told you, you have seen me and you still do not believe. All those the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never drive away. For I have come down from heaven. If you remember the language of Exodus 15, 16, the manna from heaven, he says, I am the manna. I have come down from heaven, not to do my will, but to do the will of him who sent me. Verse 40, uh, for my Father's will is that everyone who looks to the Son and believes in him shall have Zoe life. And I will raise them up at the last day. You will have this Zoe fulfilling life. And even in the last day, death will not have the final say. But I'm going to give you this type of life that's not only going to start today, but it's going to go on forever. At this, the Jews there began to grumble. Say grumble. Grumble, murmur. See what John is doing? He's, he's making echoes of the story of Exodus 15 and 16 in John chapter 6. The Jews all began to grumble. I am the bread that came down from heaven, they said. Is this not Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How can he now say, I came down from heaven? Stop grumbling among yourselves, Jesus answered. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws them. And I will raise them up in the last day. It will be written in the prop. It is written in the prophets. They will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard the Father and learned from him comes to me. No one has seen the Father except the one who is from God. Only he has seen the Father. Very truly, I tell you, the one who believes has Zoe life. Zoe, eternal and ending life. And again, I am the bread of life. I am the bread of life. Your ancestors ate the manna in the wilderness, yet they died. But here is the bread that comes from down from heaven, which anyone may eat and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. Whoever eats this bread will live forever. This bread is my flesh, which I will give for the life of the world. And then Jesus goes on to say, if you want this life, you have to eat my flesh and drink my blood. And everybody, else, everybody around him just went, what? And then it says that a whole bunch of people left him. Like this teaching is too hard. And they grumbled. In John 6, they grumbled 
in a season of little. In John 6, they grumbled in the desert, in the wilderness. Because the life they were living was not what they were expecting. Their experience was not what they thought it would look like. And some of you are in an Exodus 15, 16 type of world where you're grumbling because you find yourself in the desert, in the wilderness, and the season you're in, what you're experiencing is not the life you planned on, is not what you were expecting it to be, and you find yourselves grumbling. Some of us are in the John 6 world where there is abundance, where there is wealth, where there's leftovers, where there's leftover baskets. And maybe Jesus has blessed you with stuff in your life. But we grumble because we think it's all about the sign. We think it's all about the blessing. We think it's all about that thing. And the Bible says, and our experience would show, that whenever your life becomes about that thing, whether you have little or whether you have plenty, it's going to lead to grumbling. Whenever you think that your bios, whenever you think that your survival, your existence is dependent on that job, on that money, on that position, on that status, on that injustice that, you, that happened to you, that there needs to be justice, on that broken relationship that needs to be mended, you know, all of these legitimate things, but whenever we look to those things for Zoe, it always falls short. Whenever we think that Zoe is going to come from God, just give me abundance of bread so I got so much left over, Jesus said, you missed the point. I'm actually the bread. Whenever we're in a season of wilderness and we're looking back and we're like, man, life was so much better when it was just predictable, everyday grind. I know I was a slave, but this freedom stuff of depending on God, it's not for me, and we grumble. But God was teaching the Israelites in that season in the wilderness involuntarily how to be dependent on, on him so that in a season of plenty, they would, they would still be dependent on him. Some of you are in a season of wilderness, in that desert, and God's inviting you to dependence on him. He understands the bios. He understands that you need to eat, that you need to survive, that you need to get by. And Jesus promises us that God takes after his kids. But if we ever mistake the bios, those things that give us bios, and look to them to give us zoe, we're going to grumble every time because they can't deliver. Those things cannot deliver the life that we long for. And some of you, like I said, are in the season of plenty, but you still grumble. You're still grumbling to Jesus, asking for more, asking for more signs, asking for more of this, asking for the next thing. And Jesus is like, you don't get it. The Israelites didn't get in the desert. You're not getting it right now. It's not actually about any of this stuff. All the stuff is pointing to me, that I'm the bread of life, that you need to not eat the bread, but commune with me, have relationship with me, feed on me, my flesh, my blood. I'm going to break myself and pour myself out for you, for the life, for the good of the world. Are you going to come to the table? This morning as we end, 
We're going to end in communion. I don't know how I could speak on John 6 without ending in communion. And I'll invite those who are serving communion to come forward. But Jesus says, eat my flesh, drink my blood. And for centuries, the church has practiced this thing called communion, the Lord's Supper, the, the Eucharist. Because it's our participation, our reminder that true life does not come from any of those things. The true Zoe life, the life that's about thriving and not just surviving, only comes through relationship with Jesus, only comes from us feeding on him, consuming him. He is the life. He is I am. He is the uncreated one. He is the one that is non-contingent. He does not draw life from anything and he freely gives it because he has no shortage of life to give. And he says, you want life? Come to me. And so as we come around the table this morning, the invitation is not just to eat a cracker or drink juice, but to remember whether you're in a season of wilderness or in a season of plenty, that the stuff you see, the stuff you're feeling is not where Zoe is coming from anyways. The true life only comes through Christ. He invites us to abide in him, to commune with him, to feed on him. And so as we participate together, as the band comes forward, I would ask you, what is the source of your grumbling this morning? What is, what are you looking for Jesus to do more of? Or what, is the, what does that desert season look like for you right now where you find yourself grumbling and you're trying just to survive? And get, but you need to recognize that God knows that he's going to take care of you. But the bigger question is that Zoe life you're looking for is found in him. So put aside the things that are making you grumble and come before Jesus this morning, recognizing that it's only him that gives you full, abundant, satisfying, eternal life. Where has your expectations been different than your experience? There's many of you in the room this morning that where you're at right now is not where you expected or planned on being, but it's where you find yourself. And you're waiting on that situation or that thing to change in order to get on with your life, to experience the Zoe. But again, God's reminding you this morning that that's not what it's all about. And in fact, I'm going to teach you in this season of wilderness a new level of dependence that you didn't know before. And you're going to find that I'm faithful. You're going to find that I'm able. You're going to find a life, a perspective, a joy that's beyond circumstances, beyond understanding, beyond plenty, beyond wilderness. So we invite you, wherever you're at, whether you're in Exodus 15 or 16, or whether you're in John 6 in a season of plenty, to come participate in relationship with Jesus, recognizing that he is Yahweh, that he is the source of life. And when we come around the communion table, that is what we proclaim together with the bread, with the juice. We proclaim that Jesus is who he said he was. We, we proclaim that Jesus is God with flesh, that Jesus did break his body, that he did spill his blood for 
my life, for your life, for Zoe. Not just for today, but forever. And even though I don't know how it all works out, and even though I'm concerned about this bias, this survival, or wherever I find myself, I still proclaim in this moment that I have faith that Jesus is Yahweh, and that's enough. So as the band plays, we just invite you to stay seated. We'll have people serving the elements to you. And during worship, we invite you to take those on your own time. And then I'll come up and close. So whether you find yourself in that season of wilderness or the season of abundance, the invitation is the same. For each and every person to come to Jesus, to recognize that there's nothing in this life that gives us Zoe fulfilling abundant life other than him. And it's so easy for our eyes to come off of him and get distracted by what's going on in our workplaces, our families, our worlds, our bank accounts. And those things are important. Those things are biased. Those things are important for survival and the Lord knows them. But the, the temptation comes to see those things as the things that are going to give us life and they won't ever give us that life. And I'm well aware because, you know, as a pastor, I, you know, meet with people and hear their stories uh, uh, that there are people that are walking through significant wilderness and desert these days. Um, But luckily, that's not the only story. And the story that we just sang about is the overriding, conquering, victorious story for every follower of Jesus, that our life does not depend on those circumstances, but on Jesus, on Yahweh, on our communion with him. And I want to take a moment as we end the service today just to, to pray for anyone that might feel like they're in that season of wilderness, that for whatever reason, your life right now, what you're experiencing is not what you were expecting. You thought this was going to be a three-day journey, but you feel like it's turning into 40 years. And if you're in that moment this morning... Um, Don't worry, we're not going to ask for your story, but we do want to pray for you. Uh, And I would invite you to stand, and I would would like to pray for you if you're in that season. So if you find yourself in a season of wilderness, what you're experiencing is not what you're expecting, that you're trying just to survive, whatever that looks like, longing for Zoe, not just survival, we want to pray for you. So please stand. And if someone is, uh, yeah, I'll give you a moment. You know that the Lord has more for you than bios. He's got Zoe for you. And your eyes have been distracted a little bit. And this morning has been a reminder of, hey, I got to commune with Jesus, that the real source of life is him. And if there's someone standing beside you, um, because part of the way that people actually experience the Zoe life is through the body of Jesus, which the Bible calls his church. And we come alongside, we speak life. We, we, we are carriers of the spirit of Yahweh. And I invite you, if there's someone standing around you, just to come stand beside them, to put a hand on them.
that you can pray with me in spirit as we pray for them. God, I thank you that you are faithful. Lord, I thank you that in seasons of wilderness that you provide. Lord, your word says that when we seek first the kingdom of God, all these other things, all the stuff is going to be added to us, that you actually take care of us when we make you our priority when we seek after you first and foremost. So Lord, I pray that you would orient our eyes and our hearts towards you above all else this morning in the name of Jesus. We think of the, the realities of our world that have, where some of our brothers and sisters here find themselves in a place of wilderness, that they're just in bias, they're just trying to survive. And Lord, we pray first and foremost for your provision and we thank you that you do take care of your kids like your word says. We thank you that for those jobs who have been cut to part-time, those who have lost jobs, those who are seeking jobs, Lord, we trust that you are faithful, Lord, that you take care of our needs. And we just proclaim that in that desert season right now in the name of Jesus. We just pray for that provision. But Lord, ultimately, we thank you that that life that we're all longing for is not in that next job, is not in that next paycheck, is not, it's even beyond that. Lord, for those of us who are in even seasons of abundance and we find ourselves grumbling, Lord, what a reminder this morning that we're grumbling because we're putting our hope and our faith into something that is not worthy of it. And so we just repent of that this morning. We turn our ways and we say, Jesus, we're setting our eyes and our hearts and our faith into you and that you are the true source of life, of fullness, of abundance, of Zoe. So Lord, we give you these things and we thank you as your word says that you've heard our cries, that you see what's happening and that you know about it and that you're not okay with it and you're doing something about it. So we just give you thanks and glory in the name of Jesus. Amen. I thought the band just picked a ridiculously awesome song because even though we're talking about wilderness and desert, the word of God, the promise of God is not one of wilderness and desert, but one of new creation promise and Zoe and life. And I, I felt like that was really embodied in the song. And I just thought it was a shame that we were sitting down for that song. Um, and so I want to go an extra five minutes here. And I actually want to close with that song. And I want to invite you actually to stand up to get a bit of that South Calgaryness off of you. To sing out loud to maybe even clap your hands and thank you, Jesus, that our life is not dependent on circumstances but on your spirit that you freely give us. Amen? And after the song, um, you can dismiss yourselves, but I'll be available at the front. Our prayer team is available. We'd love to pray with you. Um, if there's anything else you want prayer for, thanks. Thanks.